Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 83, Revelation, My Two Witnesses. And in this episode, I plan to read Revelation 11, verses 1 through 13, although we will not make it all the way through that passage in this episode. But I wanted to launch us into the contents of the scroll as we have been building up to in the last several episodes with this blunt point up front. That the contents of the scroll, what this scroll reveals, is that the faithful witness and death of Christians, of followers of the Lamb, of witnesses to Jesus, is what will be instrumental in the conversion of the nations of the world. That is really the heart of the contents of the scroll, which is the heart of the book of Revelation. And so I am very excited to walk through this passage with you to hopefully help you strip away some of the common interpretations that sadly ignore vast portions of Revelation, as well as the immediate context of chapter 10, and then try to show you how the biblical narrative from beginning to end is pointing us to the interpretation that I'd like to present you with. So let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 11, verses 1 through 13. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed." They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now it is not surprising to me in the least that this passage, as well as chapter 12, um, some of the imagery that we looked at from chapters 8 and chapter 9, are filled with all manner of fantastical ideas regarding what's actually going on. 
And I do want to point out once again, as I've been reminded about a lot in recent weeks, I am offering to you the way I understand the book of Revelation. And I am not mincing words with you. I don't say that just to say it. I say it because it's number one, true, but number two, because there are other perspectives that have studied this book, maybe even more than me, who don't read it the way that I do. So I'm simply attempting to explain it to you the way I see it. And I will offer it to you as I think an encouragement as a liberating message for you. But when we come to Revelation 11, particularly as I have titled this um, podcast episode, My Two Witnesses, I grew up hearing um, a lot of speculation regarding who these two witnesses are. And um, there are some people who, based upon the uh, prophesying actions of these two prophets, they're called, of fire pouring forth from their mouths and shutting up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and people are are doomed to be killed if they disagree with these witnesses and I have heard some refer to these two as being Moses and Elijah and that that somehow and in some sense they are going to show up at the end of time these two powerful men are going to prophesy um, during the tribulation period. Again, this may have been discussed in a context where the church is no longer present. And these two people just, you know, again, it's a, it's guesswork regarding who they might be, but looking at the characteristics. Um, and, and I would agree that some of the characteristics describing the role of these men do, in fact, resemble some of the things that Elijah did and some of the things that Moses did. And yet, if you look at the actual breakdown, it's both witnesses are spoken of as prophets in the sense of Elijah. And both of them, of course, are, are also the types of things that Moses did. Both of these, these um, prophets are actually able to do. But one of the points that I made at the very beginning um, in the introduction to this episode, I would just like to repeat and that is that what this scroll reveals is that the faithful witness and death of Christians will be instrumental in converting the nations of the world. That is the heart of the contents of the scroll, which you know from listening in the past several episodes that we've been building toward the Lamb now handing this scroll to an angel who hands it to John and exhorts John to eat the scroll. We saw this in our last episode. And then John is instructed after eating the scroll to prophesy to many peoples and languages and nations and kings. And so there's a prophetic message that John has taken into himself. And John, as the one who is now passing on this revelation to the churches, right? That's the whole book of Revelation. We now enter chapter 11 and that idea of prophesying from God to the Lamb to an angel to John and to the churches, that image hasn't stopped happening. And so to imagine when we come to chapter 11 that something entirely new is taking place and that this is a futuristic thing and that it's going to be Moses and Elijah, sadly what this does is it removes Christians from the exhortation that John intends us to adopt in our own day regarding what our role is to be in our own time. And again, sadly, it's an attempt to try to understand reality 
Um, but since we have no context for it, we, we sort of insert things that we think need to be placed there. But instead of us doing that, it would be helpful to try to grasp the imagery that John intends for us to grasp. And so I just want to start. And I want to point out some things along the way, again, trying to highlight portions that you might not have noticed when you first read it, while we tend to get caught up in the things that catch our attention because we don't understand them. Um, But revelation, again, is meant to reveal. So it's not intending to confuse us. It's intending to clarify things for us. And if we look at a few of these clarifying elements, we can begin to make sense of what's happening. And so John has said he was given a measuring rod like a staff, and he was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, John, it it sounds like, is, is simply told to not only measure these architectural structures, like, like a temple or an altar, but notice that John is also told to measure people. Now that's odd, right? It, it's, a, it's a strange thing to measure. That's a strange thing to, you know, come up with dimensions. Well, we're maybe not talking about dimensions then. I mean, you know, is he supposed to measure a temple? It's a hundred feet long. Is he supposed to measure a person? Well, he's, you know, five feet eight. Like, no, that's actually not as much as what's going on. And we've looked at this before all through this podcast, but also in the book of Revelation. But that is that the New Testament's redefinition of the sanctuary or of the temple of God as the people of God. Um, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians chapter 2. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 4. Revelation 3 and the pillars in the temple. We've looked at this to the church in Philadelphia. The Christians, the followers of the Lamb, become the temple. They become the place where the presence of God dwells. And so John is given a measuring rod like a staff, and he's told to measure the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. He's to measure the altar, which we looked at in chapter 6 of Revelation, where the souls who had been martyred were under the altar crying out for justice. And then in chapter 8, that same altar is referenced again, where the prayers of the saints are offered up to God and the judgments that proceed from the throne are in response to the prayers coming from the altar crying out for justice. So when you have measured the altar, what you already know at this point in Revelation is that there's something happening at the altar where sacrifice has taken place on behalf of faithful witness to Jesus. And along the way, those faithful witnesses are crying out, when will we see justice? But then we have a third element that John is measuring, and it is those who worship there. Now, we glanced at this several episodes ago when trying to get at this idea of those who dwell on the earth and using the idea of dwelling to explain that is that in Revelation 13, um, verse 6, it says that the beast opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. 
So later in Revelation 13, John will explain to us that those who dwell there, those who worship there, where the Lord dwells is both spoken about as if it's a building, but it's also spoken about as if it's people. And Revelation in chapter 21 will do this again in even bigger um, an even bigger dimension. But for now, what we know is that somehow measuring, measuring these, these elements it was an Old Testament way of, of marking out where the, the, the protection of God was going to be. Mark out these dimensions. Pay attention to how it's going to be laid out. But then in verse 2, we're told, that John's told, I'm sorry, do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, what this shows me, I think, is that, that the, you know, we're prohibited from you know, what is measured is placed under God's protection, and what is not measured is somehow exposed to assault by the nations. And what's exposed to assault by the nations is this court outside the temple and the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, if you grew up in a maybe dispensational background or look to the future of what the entire book of Revelation is about, you might take the idea of holy city and you might be tempted to apply that to um, Jerusalem the actual holy city that was numerous times referenced in the Old Testament. Jerusalem is the place where the temple was. And so here, if John is measuring the temple, he's measuring the, the actual temple from Jerusalem. But I, I hope you think um, are able to, to grasp that by this point, as we've walked through uh, a lot of conversation about the temple, uh, um, as we looked at the fact that those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, and referencing who, who the Lord actually seals and protects is those who are faithful um, followers of his son, not those who were part of ethnic Israel. And even in the book of Revelation, when it comes time to describe the holy city, Revelation 21 and 22 actually refer to the holy city as New Jerusalem and and say that this new Jerusalem, this new city, is actually the bride of the Lamb. And so what's happening here is that this holy city that is trampled is, um, is actually referring to the bride of the Lamb. That there's an aspect here at where the Lord is protecting the, the Christians, and there's an aspect here where the Lord is not protecting the Christians. And this, again, I do understand why this has confused many people before, but when, when God began to show me and navigate through how this works, it was absolutely fascinating because the very next verse, verse 3 says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, in verse 2, we're told that, that the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months, and the Lord will grant authority to his two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, one of the things that Revelation 11 does, which I think adds to people's confusion, is that there are quite a few um, 
ideas, concepts, and phrases that appear in the passage I just read from Revelation 11, 1 to 13, that don't actually have a basis um, in the book so far. Rather, they'll have explanation to what those things are about in the chapters that come. And I've done that occasionally throughout this series as I've jumped ahead to chapter 13 or I've jumped ahead to chapter 18 or I've jumped ahead to chapter 21 because we, we need both what's in the book already and where the book is headed in order to make the most sense of these ideas. And interestingly enough, there are other references in Revelation to 42 months, and there are other references in Revelation to 1,260 days. I'm going to get to those in just a second, but before I do, I want to point out to you that 42 months and 1,260 days are the exact same period of time. The Jewish calendar operated on a 30-day month. If you take 30 and you multiply it by 42, so 42 months, 30 days per month, you get 1,260 days. So these periods right here are an identical period of time. They're simply described one in terms of months and one in terms of days. And you might say, why on earth does that happen? And I'd like to tell you. So in Revelation chapter 12, which I'm excited to get to, but it'll have to wait a few weeks. Um, we're told about a woman who gives birth to a child who's caught up into heaven and a great dragon is trying to devour the child when he's first born. It's a beautiful symbolic picture of, of the coming of Jesus and what the Lord does to defeat Satan through the coming um, of Jesus. But in verse 6, it simply says that this woman who gave birth fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. There's a nourishment and a protection and a place prepared by God and a care and a concern for his people that takes place for 1,260 days. But there's this court outside the temple, outside the people worshiping there, that is going to be trampled, that's, you know, trampling the holy city by the nations for 42 months. And wouldn't you know it, in Revelation 13, verse 5, it says, The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, what you get if you bring together the first two, ver three verses of Revelation 11 and you bring Revelation 12, 6 and Revelation 13, 5 into the picture, it begins to complete a picture for us. We've got the same period of time being described, but in terms of days, we have the Christians prophesying for 1,260 days, being protected, being nourished, being cared for and being provided for during their prophetic ministry. And at the exact same time, you have the nations who in chapter 13 are very clearly being deceived by the beast and the dragon to persecute the Christians. And the beast's authority is exercised for 42 months and the nations are given up the ability to trample the holy city for 42 months. 
And so what you have is sort of an inverted pattern. You have first, enemies assault the church for 42 months. Revelation 11, 1 and 2. Then you have the church is protected by God for 1,260 days. These two witnesses prophesy and their opponents cannot harm them. Revelation 11, 3. Then in Revelation 12, 6, you have the church is protected by God for 1,260 days. This mother of the Messiah is nourished in the wilderness and the dragon cannot destroy her. And then in chapter 13, you have enemies assault the church for 42 months. The beast wields his authority in blasphemy against God and warfare against his saints. So do you hear the pattern? It goes 42 months, 1,260 days, 1,260 days, 42 months. Sandwiched in the middle of this opposition from the beast and from the nations is the Lord's protection of his people while they faithfully witness. Which is why in verse 4 of Revelation 11, we are told that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, as you are following along in Revelation, it's helpful to know why this statement follows what we just read about two witnesses and prophesying for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. When John references the two olive trees and the two lampstands, a little bit of Old Testament might be helpful in understanding this context. In the book of Zechariah, which is one of the final few books in the Old Testament, in chapter 3, we are given a beautiful description of Joshua, the high priest, who is, who is given new garments and new items of clothing that he is going to be able to serve the people faithfully with. And then in the very next chapter in Zechariah 4, we have references again to two olive branches and to a golden lampstand. And in Zechariah 4, verse 6, the Lord says, This is what the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, Zerubbabel is a man from the tribe of Judah, which is the kingly line from um, descendant of David, who was sent to rebuild the broken city, Jerusalem, um, after Israel was brought back from exile. And so as you're reading along, these two, um, these two anointed ones, it, it's actually called in the, the last verse of Zechariah 4, the Lord says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of, all, of the whole earth. We've got Joshua the high priest, and we've got Zerubbabel, this kingly figure from the line of Judah. And so what we have, once again, these two anointed ones, these ones that are not by might nor by power, but by the Lord's spirit, says the Lord of hosts, they are referenced as two olive branches and a golden lampstand. Now, if it's not by might nor by power, but by the Lord's spirit, then we're right back to the kind of ideas regarding the Lord's spirit that rested upon Jesus when he initially came. Again, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of power, the spirit of might, the spirit of strength, of the fear of the Lord that we looked at from Isaiah 11, Jesus embodies 
not with a sword to slay his enemies, but rather with a sword that proceeds from his mouth. Jesus speaks truth. Jesus brings truth by speaking it. He doesn't have to slay his enemies in the process. But you've got these two anointed ones, Joshua the priest, Zerubbabel the kingly figure. Well, what does that mean? That means we have royal priests. We've got two of them together, one from the royal line, one from the priestly line. Is this not exactly the way the church is described in the New Testament? Does not Peter himself in 1 Peter 2 refer to the church as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for the Lord's own possession? That's exactly how the church is described. Our king and our high priest, Jesus, transform us into kings and priests ourselves. And so when John tells us that these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth, he's actually slightly transforming this image. In Zechariah, only one lampstand was referenced. But here's the rub. In Revelation 1, we're already told that a lampstand equals a church. The, latter ha the, la the last verse in Revelation chapter 1 tells us that the seven lampstands that, that, that John sees are the seven churches. We had an entire episode talking about what a lampstand did in the tabernacle and therefore what a lampstand as a church is supposed to do now. We're supposed to shine light on the space in front of it. We're supposed to shine light on the bread of the presence. Faithful witnesses in churches are supposed to shine light onto Jesus himself. That's what lampstands do. And so for John to come right out in verse 4 and tell us that these are the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth, we have to go back in Revelation and say, what do lampstands mean in this book? They don't mean candelabras. They don't mean things made of gold. These are churches. These are people. And now you might say, well, in Revelation 1, there were seven of them. So here, apparently, there's only two. Maybe only two of the good churches are actually prophesying. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, what I think is going on here is something closer to what we read in Deuteronomy 19, where the Lord tells the people that only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. You know, it's so interesting when you read the Old Testament, particularly the ninth commandment that tells us not to bear false witness against our neighbor. And then there are additional laws inserted into the law, making sure that not just one person is bringing an accusation, but a minimum of two or three need to be present in order for that accusation to have validity what is the church called to be? We are called to be Jesus's witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. What is Jesus described as at the opening verses of Revelation 1? The faithful witness. And in Deuteronomy 19, we're told only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Well, guess what's happening? We've got a group of people who are prophesying. We have lampstands who are prophesying. And is it just one of them going at once? No, there are two. 
because only on the evidence of two witnesses shall a charge be established. Or what does Jesus pick up on in Matthew 18? What does he say? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What does this mean? It means where we have in small number, even small, a community, we now have Jesus' presence in and with us in a special way in order to enable us to witness. These are the two olive, olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Or as Zechariah 4.14 puts it, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is the image. And what follows after verse 4 isn't a literal description of events. It's not even an allegorical description where you and I are supposed to pull out each individual element. It actually functions much more like a parable where the main thrust is here, the prophetic witness is present, the nations and the beasts opposition is present, the suffering death of the witnesses is present, and the resurrection vindication of those who were faithful unto death is also present. And I would like to take the next episode through Revelation to walk us through that passage because it gets interesting. We see again our phrase, those who dwell on the earth, and why is it that they oppose the witness of these believers? But the main reason I want to focus in is what happens in verse 13. And it goes right back to what our point was for this entire opening of the scroll. Verse 13 says this, and then I'll wrap this up. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. My point in bringing this entire episode to you this week is that what the scroll reveals is that the faithful witness and death of Christians will be instrumental in converting the nations of the world. Because there's a little phrase that appears right in verse 13, and it says, and the rest were terrified. Some people die, but the rest are terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. The little phrase, the rest, is the same exact phrase in English and in Greek that shows up in Revelation 9.20 when it said the rest of these people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their sins or their idolatries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. So what we actually have is a direct comparison now. We have a comparison that says the rest in chapter 9, we're not willing to repent as a result of pure judgment. But in Revelation 11, we have the rest are willing. They see something that takes their breath away. They see something that causes them to stop dead in their tracks. And they turn and I'd like to walk you through why I see them turning, even though the word repentance isn't there. The parable, the parabolic idea 
is right in the heart of this passage. And I'd like to take next time to show you what I mean. And so I'm so glad that you are tracking with me. I am very excited. I have been waiting to get to this chapter for months and months. I'm so glad to finally be here with you. I've been doing a lot of study. I've been having a chance to do some interviews for some upcoming by the book episodes. And I do plan to insert one of those as the podcast for next week. You will be very excited to listen in to my conversation and um, just hopefully be encouraged and strengthened in that way. Thank you to those who are supporting the podcast. Thank you to those of you who've left me a rating or a review. I really appreciate those. Some of you have reached out this week via email to interact and ask me questions. You're new to the podcast, and it's exciting to know that the word is continuing to spread. So I would love to hear questions from you. If you have questions, thoughts, or comments, you can email me at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. I would love to interact with you there. And I hope that you have a fantastic week. See you next time.